and welcome to The Uncertainty Principle. It's a science comedy podcast about all things scientific and, and just cool. Um, I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Taryn Lobenstein. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Ben McAllister. I'm a physicist. And I'm originally a marine biologist. And together we make up the dynamic duo that comes together <sighs> every two weeks to just talk about cool science things. Taryn, um, you've just doubled our release schedule. <laughs> Have I? <laughs> Monthly science podcast. The uncertainty. Monthly. <laughs> I was just, I was really excited to talk uh -huh. to you. And it feels, yeah, yeah. it's because it feels like it's only been two weeks since we spoke. Because I'm just so excited to talk about our next thing that I don't realize that a month has already passed. All right. That kind of makes sense. <laughs> Quick so save. What, what's this show, Taryn? Tell them about it. So in this show, if you're new, uh, what we do is we sit down each month and talk about a different science topic, but it's not just a science lecture. We like to explore our topics through the lenses of culture and history and also comedy because we like to keep things fun and fresh around here and, and just get to learn about a new topic. So one of us in this week, it's going to be Benjamin, uh, has Hello, researched hey. a topic that the other one, yeah, me knows nothing about, um... And so I will join you on our adventure of discovery because I also know nothing about the topic that we're going to talk about today. So, Ben, what is that topic going to be? Well, before we get to the topic, we should let them know in the middle we're going to have a little break from the, the sort of researched content where we're going to talk to a special guest. Right. We're going to hear about some fun research. And uh, we might have an extra special surprise for you in that uh, guest section this week. But we'll get back to that when we get back to that. Because... Today, Taryn, we're going to be talking about something, well, definitely the least down-to-earth concept that we've covered so far on this Ooh. show. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about aliens, extraterrestrials, aliens, things, deep space spooky. That's right, Taryn. So, uh, oh, as is man. traditional, we've kind of fallen into a rhythm here with this show. Like, I'd like to, to just get a kind of a baseline from you. When you think about aliens, what do you think about? Like, what do you know about aliens? All right. I mean, knee-jerk reaction is just like little green spacemen. Um, yeah. You know, like, did you guys get Lisa Frank over here? Like uh, Lisa Frank paraphernalia? I, I don't know. If we did, I didn't, but I'm not going to speak for You know what? Fair. It was like this extremely, like, stylized thing for, like, little girls in the 90s, and they okay. always had, like, unicorns and flowers and stuff, but they also had a big line of alien stuff. So that's what my brain goes to, is, like, a Lisa Frank alien, which is, okay, like, a pretty specific cool. <laughs> American yeah, 90s girl thing. <laughs> that's, that's cool. All right. Well, a couple of questions. Do you think aliens exist in the universe? Ooh, quick, I mean, quick, jumping right into the big yeah, stuff. Yeah, quick, quick, quick answers. Um, Just a baseline here. Do you think they exist somewhere? Uh, broadly defined, yes. Okay. Do you think they've ever been to planet Earth? Oh no. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Well, f fair enough. I mean, y yeah, th those are common thoughts. I mean, the universe is very, 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 very big. We know this now. Our galaxy is one of millions of billions of galaxies. And it's just like, you know, many people think it's patently absurd to suggest that there isn't other life somewhere. Uh, as you said, broadly defined, you know, there's different ways you can think about that. Either the life is intelligent, mm. like it's human-type yeah. life, or it's, you know, maybe just like something microbial, like a, or, or maybe even, you know, somewhere in between, like an animal of some kind, something similar yeah. to, you know, you know the stuff that... A little amoeba floating around. That That could be. That doesn't yeah. sound outrageous. Yeah, it could also be like something akin to one of the animals that we know about here on Earth, right? Like uh, mm. something like that. Yeah, but but anyway, um, those are, those are some of the, like the the common questions that humans like to think about. In fact, there is this really fun quote from Arthur C. Clarke, who's a science fiction writer, uh, who who famously said that there are two equally terrifying possibilities: either we are alone in the universe, or we are not. And mm, I think that really yeah. just encapsulates a lot of the different thinking about this topic because as i said we know the universe is just so ludicrously large the idea that there's no other life in it is kind of terrifying that we're just like on this little <laughs> yeah. rock hurtling through space and there's just endless nothingness surrounding us also utterly terrifying is the possibility that we're not and there's actually other intelligent or maybe not intelligent species out there in the universe 
this kind of stuff is it's fun to think about, right? Like it's it's it really captures the imagination, the idea of like yes. trying to conceptualize. And if you're asking these kinds of questions, you're interested in these questions, you are definitely not alone. I mean, we, people have been wondering about the existence of beings on other planets for a very very long time. Uh, there's there's various evidence and information that suggests that ancient civilizations believed that there might be non-human beings, but they uh, of of course had a very poor understanding of the universe, right? I mean, they didn't know about planets, they didn't know about galaxies and stuff like that that we that we know about today. Yeah, so it would have been a whole different conception, but Yeah. It's cool to think that we have been thinking about this as, you know, a human society for a very long time. A, a lot of the early thoughts about it are wrapped up in kind of like religious beliefs about there being like otherworldly godlike beings and stuff. So we're not going to we're not going to uh... talk about that stuff in too much detail because as I said, it kind of like it, it's 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 kind of nebulous because, you know, without a proper understanding of the, the structure of the universe, it's very hard to have any kind of reasonable perspectives about, like, alien life coming from other planets. Um, but th- this interest in, in alien life got more scientific. Yeah, you could broadly speaking say it got more scientific towards, like, the late 19th century, so, like, the late 1800s. Um, okay. With, you know, increased like uh, advances in astronomy and understanding of, like, that we were one planet and there were other nearby planets and there was, like, a star that we orbited and then that's Oh, wait, uh, yes. That's like my boy Copernicus, right? He was like, heliocentrism, baby. That's it. That's the future. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's right. Around that, you know, people were getting a more advanced (laughs) understanding of the the cosmos. And so they could start to say, like, okay, well, we're a planet. There are other planets. Maybe there's aliens on these other planets. And start to think about it in a little bit more detail. Um, So... There were various ideas about, like, how to try and discover or communicate with aliens that started to be developed in sort of the 19th century. And there were a few... Well, there's there's one thing that was sort of common to some of these ideas that I do want to talk about, which uh, was this idea of, like, if you were going to try and communicate with an alien Terran, like an alien Mm. life form of some kind, how do you think you might go about doing that? Well, I'd probably use my very human-centric worldview and just, like... I don't know, try and send them a radio or, uh, I don't know, yeah, like no, Morse so, code, but but then they're all human-based, so like, would yeah, they even right, understand well, that? The idea of radio waves is a pretty good one, but like, even more granular, like, let's say you've established radio contact with this alien, Ooh, right? okay. Like, you're, you're talking to an alien, or you've got a radio, like, wh- what are you going to send to them that they're going to interact with? Uh... This is like trying to create a, one of those time capsules, right? From when you're like a kid in school and you're like, things about me. My favorite color is blue and I play the clarinet. Like, yeah, I, wanna... I mean, even more, even more granular than that. Like, how are you going to communicate any of those ideas, right? Like, you're oh. sending radio waves. The alien's receiving those radio waves. You can send, like, whatever you want on these radio waves. How do you encode a message that says, uh, like, hi, I'm Taryn, I like the color blue, right? Oh, um, well, I mean, English is probably not a great method because it's just one language of many. Yeah, um, on, yeah well, hey, if you're, if you're stumped, <laughs> then... <laughs> The common language. Hey, well, if you're stumped, then that's very human of you, because, yeah, broadly speaking, this is a difficult problem. But, uh, like, uh, the point I wanted to get to was, as early as the the 19th century, there was an idea emerging that a way to communicate with a different species might be to use the real universal language of mathematics. Because... (laughs) Oh, Matt. <laughs> I mean, Taryn, you, you So you didn't off, believe but... in high school it was going to be useful. I mean, you did, yeah. but not everyone did. And now, talking to aliens, math is the way, apparently. Yeah, that, that's right. Well, I mean, if you think about it, right? Like, as you said, like, English is one language of human beings here on Earth. It's not a sensible way. You, you, you talked about the idea of using music. That, that's not actually a terrible idea, but, you know, aliens might not have ears. They might not experience sound waves in the same way as we do. Uh... They might listen to a whole different spectrum of frequencies, you know? the sounds that they can possibly interpret so but if they're an alien civilization and they're talking to you via a radio they will certainly have a concept of maths Uh, you just couldn't develop radio technology without some kind of concept of mathematics and they wouldn't call their number one one or their number two two but they would certainly have a version of one and two they wouldn't know that we call the the ratio of the diameter of a circle to its circumference a value called pi but they would certainly know what pi was even if they called Uh, it a different name this is getting into more than what I currently know about how radio waves work but (laughs) I trust you I trust you that you have to understand 
those concepts in order to make one that would well, it's, work. It's, it's, not so much, it's not so much specifically about the concept of how a radio works. It's just like, you're not going to develop a radio without science, and you're not doing science without maths. So... Ultimately, if, if, you, if you're a, a spacefaring or even just like intelligent civilization, you're going to have some concept of mathematics. So one idea that was proposed in the uh, 19th century to contact aliens, and this is like both like amazingly advanced in terms of what it's thinking about doing in terms of using maths and also just like hilariously primitive, was some people <laughs> were like, what if we carve a giant Pythagorean triangle in the Siberian tundra and we just hope that like aliens will see it? and realize that there must be an intelligent species on this planet. Because, you know, again, like aliens, they, they wouldn't know who Pythagoras was, but they would certainly be familiar with the idea that whatever they conceive of as a right-angled triangle obeys the Pythagorean theorem of the ratio of the sides of a triangle to each other, right? I love like, this. The this math is like is... Tom Hanks in uh, that movie with Wilson. What's that movie called? Castaway? Castaway? I thought you were going to say it was more like Tom Hanks in The Terminal, where he's learning how to speak English by watching Friends. Tom Hanks can apply to every situation, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I was going to say it's like Castaway meets geometry. Like, what a yeah. weird combo, but like, also kind of brilliant. Maybe it's maybe. like that movie Arrival, which was all about trying to develop a language that could be used to talk to aliens. But a uh, great movie, Ooh, by I didn't the way. see that one. Thoroughly recommend. It's, it's only from a couple of years ago. So this idea that, like, aliens, you could communicate... Whether or not you can communicate a complex concept to an alien by showing it a Pythagorean triangle, you could certainly show it a right-angled triangle with the ratio of the, you know, the blah, 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 blah. If you don't know what the Pythagorean theorem is, don't worry. Just understand that it is, like, a fundamental mathematical theorem that relates the lengths of sides of triangles to one another and so like yeah, a if, if squared you could... plus b squared equals c squared is that, that right that's right and so you know say yeah. you could show an alien that you understood that an alien would have a different word for triangle it would have a different word for the equation but it would certainly know what that equation was because it's a fundamental universal truth that transcends language and culture so you know that 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 might be the way that you might go about like communicating at least like opening a dialogue like a base level like convincing a triangle that, triangle that, square circle yeah, that, <laughs> that's that's right. Um, okay, so move, moving along from the Siberian tundra Pythagorean triangle, famous scientist Nikola Tesla. Uh, he he repeatedly Tesla. proposed. Yeah. Oh, he, he was really cool. We're not going to have time to talk about him, but like, what a cool guy. Go look him up. Maybe we'll do a Tesla special one day because he was a very cool guy. That could be fun. So t yeah. Tesla like repeatedly proposed in the late 1800s that some of his devices, like his Tesla coils, could be used mm. to pick up alien radio signals. And he he may have been right if the signals were really really powerful. Like it, it you know it may have been theoretically possible. So he was at least like already thinking in the late 1800s about using radio waves to try and talk to species or beings from different planets. Um, you you yes. may have heard this famous story from the 1800s also, where an astronomer called Giovanni Schiaparelli uh, insisted that through his telescope he could see an intricate, detailed system of canals on the planet Mars that were indicative of an Whoa. alien civilization being Kinda, present there. Yeah. Yeah. I vaguely um, remember that. <laughs> that ended up being just a problem with his telescope, uh, and, and not, <laughs> not true. But, uh, you know. Rough. How rough on him to yeah. be like, oh, it was just a smudge. Like, I know I said I got a picture of the Loch Ness Monster, but it was just like some spaghetti on my camera screen. Just a little bit rough. of spaghetti on the lens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that common problem where you have spaghetti all over your camera. Yeah. Um, accelerating a little bit into the, into the 1900s. So maybe you're familiar with this to some extent or another. This concept of like, well, you've surely heard the term UFO, right? Unidentified flying object. This, oh, this yes. idea we love of those like in the states, people are yeah. seeing them all the time. It's in the news. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, that's right. You certainly do love them in the states. That's what I was getting to. So, like in the 1900s, this idea really took hold in the cultural and pop cultural zeitgeist. And I'm going to be talking a lot about the U.S. here, just because one, it seems to be the place where this took the most hold, and two, it's where a lot of the you know congratulations on your cultural hegemony. United States because you you, you really <laughs> do dominate the global conversation <laughs> on things like this. But in the, in the 1900s, America at least, and, and broadly speaking, the world got really interested in this idea that there were unidentified flying objects which were alien spacecraft that were visiting Earth all the time. It started to really ramp up around like the 30s, 40s, 50s. Like it was it was in pop culture. It was in like fiction. You may remember um, the the H. G. Wells story, War of the Worlds. 
Which was oh, yeah, about and people like idea. thought it was real when it was on the radio, and they like yeah. panicked. That's right. So there was this story called War of the Worlds, which was just like a, a, a short story or like a novella that was like a published book. And then in 1938, they did a radio play version of it, which was just like Orson Welles, famous actor, like reading out like a sort of fictionalized radio. In, in hindsight, it's pretty obvious what was going to happen. Essentially, they were like doing this radio play that was the like the part of it was the idea that it was like I'm a radio reporter and I'm oh no aliens are attacking oh they're invading oh god the mili- New York is being overrun. Anyway, people oh, tuned god. in having missed the initial announcement that this was going to be like an hour long radio drama. Thought it was real <laughs> and freaked the fuck out. There were like armed mobs roaming the streets. It was chaos. Oh, like yeah. And anyway, so so around that this is time before the days of the internet. When you could just Google and be like, "Is this real?" Oh, uh, no, it's a hoax, and just hey, go back Taren, to scrolling do you think on people Twitter. are doing that very effectively today. Has that been your impression <laughs> of human beings today? We're getting marginally better at it. I disagree. I think we're getting worse. But um, anyway, <laughs> that's a separate question. That was like happening in sort of the the, the late thirties, around the sort of post-war era. So like late late forties. It started to kind of take hold even more. Um, a lot of people attribute the the massive surge in UFO interest to this guy called Kenneth Arnold, who was an aviator and, and businessman who was like flying his hmm. plane around, and he basically claimed he saw a bunch of UFOs. And people were like, "Oh shit!" Like claims of alien abduction start ramping up. People claiming they've been visited personally by aliens. They've been like abducted and taken on spaceships. It basically takes root around the middle of the twentieth century and, and basically doesn't go away. Really? Yeah. Okay, so there's a couple of specific instances, or at least one specific instances, instance I would like to highlight. Have yes, you heard of the, Ros- the Roswell incident? Roswell. It, it rings a bell, but I can't remember any details. So just so, take me so through So here's it. a thing that happened in 1947 in a town called Roswell, New Mexico. Essentially, mm-hmm. a farmer found some weird debris on his farm and was like, hmm, what's all this about? Reports it to the local authorities. And a few days later, the military, the US military, releases a press release that says, we have found the remnants of a flying disc on this man's farm. What? The media goes bananas, runs all these headlines that are like, we found aliens, there's an alien plane, an alien ship that's crashed in, in Roswell. Like, a day later, the military retracts its statement and says, oh, it was a weather balloon. So... <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a real series of things that did happen. And it, it began this whole, like, era of UFO conspiracy theories. This this is where it went from being like, oh, cool, there's UFOs, to, to people being like, the government knows about these UFOs, and they're hiding ah. them from us. Now, you know, if you ask me, probably what happened there is there was an experimental, like, military plane being flown around. It crashed. The military who found it initially didn't know that it was that. And they were like, oh, there's this weird spacecraft and then someone much higher up showed up in a black helicopter and said hey how about you shut up <laughs> and then they released the like oh no it's a weather balloon thing but anyway who, who knows what happened there certainly um people were very interested in this stuff and i will say by the way it wasn't just people various world governments were also getting interested in ufos around this time in the 1950s the u.s military uh, again i'm talking a lot about the u.s here but extrapolate this to the world um, mm-hmm. had a program called Project Blue Book, real government program, that was meant to be investigating UFOs. N- n- now. I guess it n- makes sense if yeah. they're really worried about it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, you know, you, you can also say, and, you know, if you're going to be a rational skeptic about this and not buy into conspiracy theories, you would say, well, it was kind of post-World War II, Cold War ramping up, threats of potential weird craft maybe from your technologically advanced uh, enemies entering your airspace. So if yeah. you look at what, what a UFO is, right? Like, a UFO doesn't say it's an alien vessel. It says it's an unidentified flying object. It's very clearly non-alien. So the US government yeah. investigating UFOs is not necessarily investigating aliens it's investigating anything that's flying around anything in that space flies that, that they don't know what it is right so Suspicious not saying bird. it's not aliens but also not saying that it is definitely aliens right just saying we're looking for stuff so that that's kind of like broadly speaking a history of, of humans interest in uh potential alien stuff Okay. How about does, does that overlap at all with area 51 i feel like that's another place in the states that people are like they, when you think about UFOs, you think about Area 51. 
Yeah, I kind of skipped over Area 51 for the sake of time, but I will very quickly just run through it. So um, there is a real US government research facility that has been going by the common name Area 51 for, I think, about three decades now. I think it was sort of like the, the late 90s when this idea of Area 51 came to the public's uh, attention. But it is a real military base. I don't think the government actually calls it Area 51. Um, and essentially, it's a top secret base, and it has long been thought of as as the sort of home of all of the government's alien cover-up shit. So all that stuff I was saying about how like people started believing that the government knew about UFOs and was hiding it, mm-hmm. everyone seems to think that that's happening at Area 51. And that like the well, Roswell there... craft is at Area 51. And yeah, go on. Wasn't there like a Facebook event where people were going to raid Area 51 a couple of years ago? Didn't that happen? Yeah. Absolutely, that was a real thing that happened. It started as a dumb joke, and then it, it didn't happen in that they raided it. It just, like, yeah, pe- someone made a dumb joke on Facebook about, like, let's raid Area 51, and it got hugely viral. And um, if you want to hear about that, go listen to Reply All, because <laughs> this show is not about uh, fun internet phenomena, and it is about uh, aliens. So, all right, Taryn, let's talk about what aliens might look like if they do exist. Ooh. So... Obviously, we don't know, right? I mean, like, it's tempting to say, oh, they're, they're going to be humanoid, right? Little green men. That's a common one. This idea of them being, like, bipedal things that vaguely look like people, but are maybe a different kind of slight shape or color or size or something like that, right? Yeah. So maybe aliens are like that, but there's also no real reason to think that they would be like that. Um, no. We just like ourselves a lot, and we like to think that everyone, everything else in the universe would look a lot like us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly true. And so, like, you know, if, if you look in science fiction, science fiction is rife with, like, all kinds of, like, crazy alien stuff. This idea that, like, okay, forget about them being bipedal things that walk around. Maybe these aliens don't have physical solid bodies. Like, maybe these aliens are, like, gas clouds. Like, galaxy-spanning clouds of gas that float around and have consciousness, right? Like, if you wanted to get really completely out there yeah so so all this to say like there's there's a lot of different thoughts about like what aliens could be like and ultimately anyone who's telling you what aliens could be like is speculating however i will point out that there are people who study evolutionary biology who believe that we actually have good reason to think that aliens whilst they might be different from human beings like not necessarily bipedal humanoids Maybe we don't need to throw away everything we know about biology. Maybe they look like more like stuff we'd be familiar with than you might think is possible. So I'm particularly going to direct you to the work of this guy named Eric Kirschenbaum. He's a zoologist. Uh, I actually interviewed him on a recent episode of Naked Astronomy, my other podcast. So you can go check that out if you'd like. But um, Name drop, love it. <laughs> yeah, Eric Kirschenbaum <laughs> contends that evolution as a lever for the development of species is true on Earth, and also, assuming it's true elsewhere in the universe, we can assume that, like, probably something like a gaseous hive mind alien being is pretty unlikely to form. Because, mm. well, I mean, you're an evolutionary biologist to some extent, Taryn. The Maybe you can weigh in on this. The point that was made to me was that Whilst, you know, like, if you were going to sit here and design a clever alien that was just going to, like, exist and and thrive, you might think, oh, wow, yeah, why don't I not give it a physical body? Why don't I make it, like, a gas cloud that has a brain and can think, it consumes very little energy, and it just kind of, like, floats around and doesn't need many resources, right? You might think that that's actually a really fucking great idea, but... Evolution is not a person. Evolution doesn't have a brain and it doesn't have an endpoint in mind. Evolution is a series of tiny steps from one thing to something else. And there wouldn't really ever be like an evolutionary lever for how something could start in the form of life as we know it. So again, this is all under the assumption that the life is like something like we know it. Like starting as microbial life and ending up as a gas cloud by purely like evolutionary levers. It seems like very, very unlikely and very, very difficult to imagine a world in which that could be true. Do you have any thoughts about that? Sure. I mean, to me, absolutely that makes sense. If we're starting from a baseline that resembles, you know, amoebas or how life started here on Earth. And I don't think we can necessarily take that as a given. But if we do, I totally agree with him. But I feel like I've also read stuff about how like, you know, life forms elsewhere might not even be carbon based the way that you know we conceive of life here and that it's based on carbon atoms yeah so then you know gas conscious forms i mean it's hard to conceive of but i also can't rule it out 
No, I completely agree. I think that's essentially it, right? I mean, like, yeah, assuming that, like, the biology and chemistry, at least at a sort of basic fundamental level, holds up in other parts of the universe the way it does here on Earth, I think that that, that makes sense, right? Like, it, it's probably, you know, yeah, sure, they might be, like, more like dogs or squids or monkeys or birds or something, but it's probably not going to be, like, something completely crazy and insane. However, it's a big bad universe out there, and... <laughs> There could be complete new forms of chemistry and biology that we don't even understand yet, right? So, absolutely, uh, we, we simply don't know. You certainly can't rule anything out completely. However, given it is a big, bad universe and there could be so many possibilities, if we want to start thinking about what aliens might be like from a perspective of maybe trying to practically contact them, there's an argument to be made that we may as well start with what we know, right? Like, we may as well say, like, okay, let's not rule that stuff out as possible, but let's just go with, like, on the balance of probability... We can think, yeah, it's probably going to have, like, a physical body and, like, <laughs> you know, some kind of um, vaguely familiar uh, concept of, like, having a place yeah. where it ingests stuff that it eats that it turns into energy if it's going to be, like, a developed life form. Does that, does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so, Taryn, let's get away from, like, this discussion about, like, what an individual alien might look like, right? Let's talk about a bird's eye view of an alien society, right? Because, of course, again, there's a difference here, right? This is getting fun. (laughs) Yeah, because, like, you know, here, when we're talking about what an individual alien looks like, that doesn't necessarily say anything about whether they're, like, intelligent and have cities and spaceships and radios and stuff. But Mm -hmm. let's talk about, like, imagining that they do, imagining that there's an alien civilization out there somewhere. How can we think about these alien civilizations? Well, one of the most popular ways to do it was proposed by Soviet astronomer Nikolai Kardashev in 1964. And Kardashev came up with what has become known as the Kardashev scale to describe civilizations. So again, this is like zooming out and taking a bird's eye view of what a civilization might be like based on how much energy that civilization could consume. Now, obviously... Energy? Yeah, like how much energy... Energy in the form of food or, like, in the form of, like, gas I put in my car? Energy in the form of energy as a physical quantity. The ability to do work. So, like, the... Oh, this is a physics thing. (laughs) I mean, it's it's not really. It's just, like, everything that we do on Earth, right, requires energy. Powering a car, turning on a computer... Uh, doing computations, launching spaceships into space, like all of that requires different forms of energy. So mm-hmm. if you want to take like a thousand kilometer view of a civilization or, you know, much, much bigger than that, then you would, uh, you, one way to do that would be to classify how much energy the civilization has at its disposal. Because when we're talking about, like, alien civilizations on very grand scales, we're talking about, you know, doing stuff like colonizing multiple planets, you know, like, moving between galaxies. All of that stuff takes an inordinate amount of energy, and so we need to think about things just in terms of raw energy. Um, So, if I could extend the metaphor, then Uh we know that, like, ants, they, like carry, you know, food and have these complex, like, you know, underground things. And there's like a queen, because I've seen the movie Ants and A Bug's Life. So I have Uh a vague understanding of how ants work. Indeed. That is all um, work. But because it's all so small, then it wouldn't be the same as like a human society doing all the things that a human society does, even though there's a lot of ants, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, certainly humans consume more energy than ants. That's right. And as a result, we're able to do more marvelous technological things. Like, you know, ants are very cool, but they don't have computers or cars or modern medicine. So it, it. it requires a certain amount of energy, just the raw physical quantity of energy to achieve really anything. And so the amount of energy at your disposal is a pretty good measure of how advanced your civilization is, or technologically advanced at least. So according to Nikolai Kardashev's Kardashev scale, Earth, humans, we are currently what would be called a type zero civilization, because we suck. We, you know, (laughs) we we haven't... That's not where I thought this was going to (laughs) go. Yeah, no, because we're talking about going up from humans, right? So... Like, that's type zero isn't actually even categorized by Kardashev. Kardashev's interested in advanced alien civilizations. So we start on the oh, Kardashev so scale. Like, uh, humans, you suck. I don't even want to think about you. Yeah. <laughs> Your ground let's, floor. <laughs> let's start with a type one civilization on the Kardashev scale. This is a civilization okay. which is capable of harnessing all of the energy that uh, arrives at its home planet from its star. 
So this would be like, you know, okay. all of the energy on Earth comes from the sun, like all of the energy arriving at Earth. It comes in the form mm -hmm. of light, which is then, you know, eaten by plants and they turn it into sugars and stuff. And, you know, or it's just heat. The various different forms of energy come to Earth from the sun. Creates wind and then we try and make wind farms. Sure, yeah. All of the energy that is, is bombarding Earth is coming from the sun. And, you know, a little bit from other parts of space. But, you know, broadly speaking, it comes from the sun. A Type 1 civilization would have figured out how to harness all of the energy arriving at its home planet from its local star. So, like, oh, man. through. Or, or, <laughs> We're or so bad at that. <laughs> yeah. Or, or at least, like, um, be able to generate energy in some other way, be it like nuclear fusion or whatever, uh, on that level. So, be able to like, create as much energy in one form or another as is, you know, the amount of energy arriving at their planet from their local star. Does that make sense? So, basically, like, they don't rely on fossil fuels anymore. They're 100% renewable, and they're just, they've eliminated that as a societal issue. They know what they're doing. I think possibly technically, strictly speaking, you could be qualified as type 1 if you used fossil fuels as long as you were producing a lot of them. But you just wouldn't be able to really produce enough energy, I think, really, with fossil fuels to, 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 to reach that level. Like, you could, you could hmm. be producing your energy using, like, nuclear fusion, right? And then that's not, like, a fusion reactor. That's not energy coming to Earth from the sun. You're just, like, creating True. energy by smashing hydrogen together. But you've just got so, so, so much more of it than we're currently producing. Okay. But, yeah. I mean, one, one way to think about it would be, like, yeah, you've got all the energy arriving on Earth. You're catching it all with solar panels. Step two, type, really two cool. type two civilization, is to say, oh, okay, gosh. now that you've done that, what if instead of catching all the energy arriving at your planet from your local star, you just decided we're going to go ahead and gobble up all the energy provided by our local star in its entirety. D just have so much unfathomably more energy than the energy arriving at our individual planet and again, whether it's you're actually harvesting all the energy of the star or finding some other way to do it, you're generating about as much energy for your civilization as is generated by a single star. So the difference is, in step one, you're like, let's say, all of the sunlight that happens to hit the Earth. But yes. I guess sunlight is going in all directions That's at right. any time. So it's about not just catching the stuff that happens to hit your planet, but like, all of the rest of it somehow, too. That's right. Proactively going to the star and saying, your energy is for me now, thank you very much, and I'm using that <laughs> energy to build my, like, many, many different planet civilization, where, like, now my species is all spread out across the galaxy because we're harnessing all of the energy from this star in order to achieve that goal. But yeah. I will say two things. When you said um, gather that energy somehow, one of the ways that people talk about gathering that energy is to build what's called a Dyson sphere, which is essentially a shell that goes around the star that just harnesses all of the energy that radiates away from the star. Kind of like, you could think about it like a giant solar panel that just encompasses the sun and harnesses all of its energy. Whoa. Yeah, so this is like a, a theorized, what they call, uh, alien megastructure. It comes up when you start thinking about, like, yeah, okay, let's say we can get all the energy on Earth. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're already harnessing all the energy on Earth, and your civilization is growing in such a rate that you need more energy, the obvious next step is to go and get the rest of the energy from the sun. <laughs> because that's how the universe makes energy, is by smashing shit together and forming a sun. So you may as well just go get that free energy out of the universe. Now, another thing that you could do when you're asking what do you do with that energy okay, well, you've got your Dyson Sphere, you're harnessing all of the energy of your local star, what if you build a computer that goes around that um, star and uses all of that energy to do incredibly advanced calculations and computations? Now, you've developed what's called a Matryoshka brain, which is another sort of science fiction, Ooh. science fact, theorized concept that seems like, again, just kind of like a natural, logical progression of what an extremely advanced civilization would do. And the reason that it's interesting, I mean, like, you know, to, to, spoiler it, to spoil it, the reason that it's interesting to think about this stuff is because by, by starting to theorize, like, okay, let's just say, like, what the natural next steps in, like, this civilization's evolution are, it gives us clues as to what kind of things we might go looking for in space as evidence of aliens, right? Like, if we see mm -hmm. a big fucking thing around a star that doesn't look like anything natural, we might say, oh, wow, that's a Dyson Sphere from a civilization that is so much more advanced than us that they've actually managed to build something like that. Because don't get me wrong, it sounds simple when you're just talking about it like this, like on paper, but the, the, the process, like the concept of actually building something like a Dyson Sphere is a staggering, oh, staggering yeah. concept. My mind is trying um, to like wrap itself around like what on earth that would even... 
what on, not on earth what what yeah. uh, in the universe like that would even look like how it would like how would you even build like my brain yeah. is just boggled by it so well you you build it by having access to shitloads of energy um one of the uh ways that it has been vaguely proposed we might be able to do that here uh, on earth or here in our solar system at least is if we disassembled jupiter atom by atom we could use <laughs> all of that matter to build a dyson sphere around our sun so Sucks to be jupiter why did we have to disassemble <laughs> jupiter that's because a fun planet Ju- jupiter is the biggest <laughs> rocky planet right that's the thing like at a certain point you need raw material if you want to build a shell that goes around the sun you need a lot of matter that you can use to do with the, Damn, do that with right sorry so, jupiter yeah sorry, sorry to take jupiter. one for the team you got turned into a dyson sphere that's right um oh, poor jupiter yeah uh okay you, you ready to hear about a type three civilization taryn <sighs> oh my god i can I even try to guess what they would do? Yeah, so go the on. The first one's take get the energy, and the second one is build a computer. Then maybe the third one is like, I mean, my sci-fi brain wants to be like time travel, <laughs> like yeah. I don't even well, know. Well, like, again, remember we're talking about scales of energy things? here, right? So, like, yeah. we're, not, we're not necessarily talking about what they can do with that energy. We're just talking about classifying them in terms of scales of energy. So, type 1 is all the energy uh, arriving at Earth or on your planet. Type 2 is the energy from your local star. <gasps> Did they build a star? Type 3 is harnessing all of the energy from an entire galaxy. So... Uh. Like, our galaxy's like a hundred million stars. This kind of civilization would have harnessed, you know, or, or at least have at its disposal, energy on the level of, like, all of the stars in a galaxy. So, like, just a, a frankly just disgusting, staggering, unfathomable amount of energy, right? And you might think, like, oh, if there was a civilization out there that had that kind of energy at its disposal, we would know about it. Not necessarily yeah. true, because the I universe feel like, is... would they really want to get involved in this whole situation we've got going down here? Maybe they were like, oh, these plebs, they don't even know what a Dyson Sphere is. I'm not talking to them. Yeah, no, we would literally be less than ants to them. I mean, when you think yeah. about, like, the scale of, um, of, of you know, work, like, galaxies, we, we can't even, like, no human being has ever been further than the moon. The idea of, like, you know, spanning a galaxy with this, like, massive energy harvesting scheme is just, like, so far beyond anything we can conceive of that, yeah, they, they, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even be, like, remotely interested in what we're up to here on Earth. So, no. um, yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's the Kardashev scale that talks about what hypothetical civilizations might be like and how we might think about things that we could look for. Um, and now, with your permission, Taryn, I would like to take a little bit of a break, and I would like to talk to our special guest. I would love that. Let's talk. Let's talk to them. Okay, cool. We are here, or I am here, in West Australia with our special guest researcher this week. Uh, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I am Nola. I am um, an andrologist at Fertility North, and I am also a producer for the Uncertainty, uncertainty Principle. That's right. So yes. yeah, uh, we've got a little two-for-one here for you. In addition to having a little interview, we are going to introduce to you Nola, who is our producer. Now, if some of you listened to the live show that went up a little while ago, the Dark Matter live episode that was pre-recorded, you will have in fact heard Nola at the end, because she <laughs> yes. has been producing all of the live shows of the Uncertainty Principle, and now she's helping us out with the, well, we call them the dead shows um so <laughs> no uh, but the thing that you might not know about nula is that as she's just told you she is also an andrologist uh which is a type of scientist and i think <laughs> i did uh, not nula, know that was you your tell official us what an andrologist is yeah your official title that's so cool yep yep that is it so uh in layman's terms uh-huh. uh i'm i work with sperm Mm-hmm. I'm a spermy scientist. Okay. Oh, as um, so yeah, I work at a fertility clinic. Um, and I work in the side of the lab that it deals with the semen sperm, preparing it for treatment, and also doing the diagnostic analyses of it. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So you um, you work in like preparing the semen for like IVF treatments and stuff, right? But you also did some research into this field at some point. Can you tell yes. us a little bit about that? Yes, last year, um, as part of my honours, I did a research project which was comparing two different techniques for preparing semen for use in treatment. Um, so that I was comparing the current sort of gold standard with this new fancy device that's just come out on the market. 
Okay. So can you walk us through like an IVF process, how it works? Yeah, like, you yeah. Get some semen. When you say you're preparing it, like, yeah, what are you doing? So in uh, vivo, during normal sexual intercourse, what happens is when the semen is squirted into the female. There's got to be a more technical term for that. (laughs) Nola's a scientist about this, and that's how she decided to describe it. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Ejaculated into the female. Okay, okay, let's get technical then. Um, uh, As the sperm, like, makes its way through, all the good, nice, pretty boys, the good-looking sperm, get separated from the dead sperm, and also the rest of the stuff. Just naturally. Yeah, it just happens naturally. And so, like, that's why you need good, like, swimmers. And they are the ones that manage to actually make their way up to the egg. Okay. Um, And so, obviously, in, um, say, IVF or other... And IVF stands for, for those who don't know? In vitro fertilization. And uh, that just means instead of having sex, you take the semen and you, like, put it in the egg in a dish. Yeah. uh, Yeah, which is what... uh, form of um, fertility treatment. There are mm-hmm. other types such as um, intrauterine injection or IUI, which is less invasive. We just take the sperm, process it, and it gets injected straight into the uterus huh. at the time of ovulation. So there are a couple of different types of treatment. Right, but when those are happening, it's different from in the where the, the sperm are being filtered naturally, right? Yeah, so we have to try and replicate that ah, natural process okay. in a lab. And the way that's currently done is called density gradient centrifugation, where mm. you like you layer media of different densities, and then you put the semen on top, and then you centrifuge it, and only the good, healthy sperm are able to make their way through to the bottom. So it sort of acts like a sieve. Right. Like an obstacle um, to course. To collect that good, healthy sperm. That's how I like to think of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is actually how they describe the female reproductive tract. Really? There's all these anatomical obstacles that only the, the tip top can make ah, it through. Okay, okay, cool. So, all right. So good sperm will make it through these layers and then you've got them and now you're like, cool, these are the good sperm because for, to do your fertility treatments, whatever they may be, you only want to use the good sperm. Yes, okay. yes. You only, you really need to separate it out. Yeah, and so the... Using those gradients is currently how it's done. This new device is called microfluidic sperm sorting. Okay. And the way that works is it's a single-use device where really easy to use. You just load the sperm into a bottom chamber, uh, and then there's uh, separated from the upper chamber with a sort of filter. Mm-hmm. And then in the upper chamber, you put some media, and only the good sperm is able to swim up to the upper chamber. Right. So you don't have to centrifuge it or anything. Yeah. You just... Yeah. Which is actually part of the reason it's promising is because centrifuging the sperm can damage it and it causes Uh, DNA damage. And so it's not ideal. So they're looking for different ways ways to do it that don't need centrifugation. So actually, for people who who aren't as familiar with labs as we are, centrifuging is... It's when you spin it around really, really fast. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. It's like that um, the Gravitron ride that you might go on at an amusement park. It is exactly oh, yeah. like that. And it presses but you up sperm. against the sides and you're like, ah, it's that for sperm. Yes, yes, that's it. And so... Um, so you create like an artificial pressure pushing them through the layers and only the healthy ones can make it through. Yes. Ah. Oh, gosh, that was such a physicist's take. <laughs> <laughs> that's my job. Um, okay, all right. So you researched the difference between these two methods using the centrifuge and using this new piece of equipment um what did you find so um i found some things that were significant so the new the mss device was better at um getting more motile sperm so the sperm had a higher percentage that were swimming around um and also got a higher concentration of motile sperm and is that just because the centrifuge method was killing some of those motile sperm uh well you can't really you can't really know exactly what's happening there. You know, like, you know, you could theorize that or, um, you know, more could just be getting caught through. Mm. Uh, whereas like that's much, so it's called a microfluidic sperm sorter because it's really small. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, um, uh, specifically I was looking at something called the acrosome reaction, which is, uh, something the sperm has to undergo to like penetrate the acrosome, which is the protective layer around the egg. Um, and I was seeing if uh, the new device impacted this reaction at all, the sperm's ability to undergo the reaction. So really, it was looking at if it affects the sperm's fertilization ability at all. Um, and with that, so I had to in- 
artificially induce this reaction and mm-hmm. see which sperm were able to undergo it. Uh, and there was a trend that the MSS sperm uh, was slightly worse at it, oh, wow. slightly less, yeah, yeah, that affected it, but it didn't reach significance, which is... You know, mm. not unexpected in smaller okay. sample size in a year-long project. So Okay, so some yeah. early indications that maybe it's not as good, but nothing super conclusive. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so cool. cool. Um, that's very interesting research, and you still do it as a job, which is very cool. Now, uh, for the listeners, part of the reason that we wanted to get Nula in here is not just because her research is um, kind of hilarious, it's but uh, also because, if again, if you, if you listen to the Dark Matter episode, uh, you'll know that we sometimes play fun little games that Nula produces for us. So I thought, we're going to start doing that again on the show. We're probably going to do that, not every episode, but from time to time, towards the back end of the show. Um, but, given we've got Nula right here in the middle of the show for you, Nula, do you have a fun little science quiz game you can play for us as a kind of teaser, a taster for the audience of what they might receive in future weeks? Yes. Yes, I do, in fact. Fucking fantastic. Um, yes. So, today we are going to play celebrity heads. Okay. Uh, except with what? scientists, famous we, scientists. Sci- celebrity heads? So, <laughs> what is celebrity heads? That's me, I'm the jokester. Celebrity <laughs> heads, Taryn. Celebrity heads with scientists. Um, what do you is celebrity heads? No, I don't know that game. Oh god, this might oh. be like a culture shock thing. Oh, this might be like yeah. an America, Australia thing. So, uh, usually uh, when you actually have people in person to play <laughs> celebrity heads, what happens is you write down on a piece of paper a celebrity and you give it to the person they stick it on their forehead, give it a lick and stick it on their forehead, and they have to ask you questions to try and discern who that celebrity is. Okay, I've seen Um, that in like movies and stuff. to do it with scientists, so how fun. Oh, I love it. (laughs) All right, let's go. I thought that was a universal, international thing. I think it is. I just don't think we call it that. Yeah. Uh, So originally I was going to, I had one for each of you. Okay. And I was just going to get you started and I know who you have, but for time, I'm thinking, let's... You're on the same yeah, team. Yeah, okay. We're I trying got, to guess it. Yeah, okay. you're how trying many, to get it. How many it questions and you, do we get? Um, maybe three each? Yeah. Yeah, maybe three each. And if you okay. don't get it, you lose. Okay. All right. Um, All right, Ben. We're, right. we're in this okay. together yeah. for oh, once. Ben, do you want to start us up? <laughs> I love that, Taryn. Okay, I'll, I'll start us up. I'll start us up. Um, is the scientist uh, male? Yes. Okay, Dope. cool. Okay. Uh, okay, so yeah, that, that's one of them. Um, and it's only yes, no questions we have to ask, right? Yeah. Okay. Is the scientist currently alive? No. Okay. All right. That means it's over to you, Taryn. You, you, you get to go. Oh, okay. Um, are, do they specialize in biological sciences? Yes. Okay. okay. So they are a dead male biologist. Okay. Uh, you got another one in there, Taryn? Um, let's see. Do they... Ooh. This is hard. I've never played this game before. Huh. Um, <laughs> did they live in America? No. No. Okay. Hey. I've only got one more question, Taryn, and then you've only got one more question, then we've got to guess. Oh, God. So, um, okay. Did they discover something that saved a lot of lives? No. Okay, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting very fucked. All right. Okay. <laughs> Taryn, you got one more narrow it down. Did they study animals? Yes. Was oh, it, shit. Was it, oh shit! Oh shit! It could be in here. I think it, I, oh, was it Charles Darwin? Yes! 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 I thought it was going to be. Oh, was, fuck yes! oh my god! Way to pull it out at the end there, yeah. Tom. Oh, Jesus! Well, I was I mean, like, she, we're she, fucked with the know? biological sciences. Like yeah, that yeah, really yeah. got wow. you there. That was yeah. that was huge. That's just my Congratulations, Jesus! Yeah, <laughs> that was my my heart is racing. Yeah, I didn't. I thought <laughs> we were going to embarrassingly lose that one. <laughs> yeah, I know, and then you pulled it out at the last minute. Well, hey, um, thank you so much for taking the time, Nula, to chat thank to us you, about Nula. your um, sperm science. And also, <laughs> tell us, uh, a f- play a fun game with us. Uh, we'll definitely have you back towards the end of future episodes to play uh, fun quiz games similar to that one. Oh, I so, can't wait. Yes, really yes, excited to come back. Fantastic. Okay. I'll start thinking up some more celebrities for you. <laughs> Science <laughs> <good>. celebrities. <laughs> So all this talk about energy and building technology is really interesting to me, but where my brain is going is like, okay, so they can like build a Dyson sphere, but like, what is their interpersonal, you know, uh, system? Like, are they, have they eliminated inequality? Like, what is the society structure like as, as a person that's, or a thing, an alien inside that society? Like, do we think in order to create a Dyson sphere or a, whatever the next step after that is the brain would they also have to be 
advanced interpersonally. Do you know what I mean? One of the things that's fun to think about uh, with this stuff is like, would they even necessarily be organic life? I mean, I didn't want to get into this for the second time, but like, <laughs> they may be like an AI, like a full, full blown artificial intelligence species that is just like no longer even anything like a social structure that we understand. But yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd think that in order for them to be that advanced, that they would have had to like become some kind of sci-fi techtopia, right? Well, yeah, but like, you know, as a, as a person who is not a technology file or whatever the word is, like, I want to know, like, <laughs> you know, how is this society structured? Do you have a job? Like, is capitalism a thing? Probably not. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know. Well, like, well, well, how welcome. is that structured? Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting, but it's like, we, we can't even begin to speculate. But yes, I mean, broadly speaking, when you look in science fiction at what it predicts places like this look like, yeah, they typically don't have jobs, per se. <laughs> There's something we can't even really conceive of. Um, yeah. Let's move on. All right, Taryn. So we, we've thought about what some aliens might be like. We've heard about our, interest, uh, our history of interest in aliens. Let's talk about efforts to try and detect aliens. How do you feel about okay. that? I feel very excited about it. Okay. Um, I don't know that I know much, so please enlighten me. <laughs> All right. Well, broadly speaking, there are a few different ways. One of the ways that we can try and detect aliens is to essentially do what Nikola Tesla was proposing back in the late 1800s and listen to space with big radio telescopes and try and intercept signals from other advanced civilizations, right? I mean, Earth is constantly blasting radio waves out into space all the time, just from, like, our <clears throat> cellular network and stuff. You know, it's not unreasonable to think that other alien species might also be blasting radio waves out into space, and by building big radio telescopes, dishes that try and detect radio waves coming from space, we might be able to, to catch some alien signals. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, we're so just tuned into, like, Aliens 105.9, and we're just... Yeah, that's right. Waiting, alien waiting for alien radio. Through. Alien radio, baby. That's right. <laughs> and um, so there, there's, there's a couple of places that do this. One of the most famous ones is called the SETI Institute, SETI standing for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They have a telescope array called the Allen Telescope Array that is in Northern California that they use 12 hours a day, seven days a week to just listen to space and gather radio data and, and search through through it for signals sent to Earth by alien civilizations. SETI, what the SETI a cool Institute. Job. I know it's very, like, very cool. I very... am a radio. I'm a radio DJ for aliens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, they're more like you're more like a radio listener for aliens. Um, what do you do? I just listen to the radio, man. Yeah, I listen to the that's alien. My job. I listen to the alien radio, man. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something someone would say to you at a music festival. Um, but it's real. It's a real job. Yeah, it is a real job. Isn't science cool and fun? Oh, it's the best. Okay, cool. So that, that's something you could do if you worked at the SETI Institute or a few other places like um, the Berkeley SETI Research Center. There are various places around the world. I, I should say, again, this is relatively US-centric. China recently built the biggest um, extraterrestrial-focused radio telescope in human history, so they're definitely currently listening harder than anyone else. Uh, nice. Yeah, so... People have, have been doing this for a while. I think the first like radio telescope SETI searches began in the 1980s. Um, but yeah, they've been persisting to today. So just listening to space, listening for radio signals. Another thing you might think about doing if you wanted to detect aliens is rather than waiting for them to send signals that you could catch, is you could go sending your own signals in the hopes that the aliens might pick them up. And if okay. you were going to do that then you would be looking at something like the Arecibo message, which is a thing that happened in 1974, where we sent a radio signal into space explicitly with the, object, uh, the objective of being detected by aliens so that they could try and get back in touch with us. Okay. But but also, I mean, the, the thing that must be said about the Arecibo message is, I remember before when we were talking about, like, how do you contact aliens... I think, like, it yeah. was it was mostly because, like, you know, it, it's very, very hard. And I, 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 the people who designed it, it was, like, Carl Sagan and, 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 and Frank Drake. Oh, even you know, they, so, like, total idiots, amateurs. <laughs> yeah. E even they said at the time, like, look, this isn't a real serious attempt to contact aliens. It's, it's more, like, to inspire people to think about this kind of stuff. And also, like, yeah, it's like a demonstration of our achievement. Like, that we're able to send this message that we're pretty sure is going to reach, like, distant galaxies. So, essentially, it was, like, encoded in this radio wave were the numbers 1 to 10, 
The atomic numbers relating to the elements hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus, which make up DNA. Um, the chemical formulas for DNA. Various other stuff, including like a graphical picture of the solar system, uh, indicating where Earth was, like the, the the specific planet that Earth, where the, the signal was coming from, and like the the dimensions of a of an average man. So there's like a lot of thought that that goes into how something like this is constructed. But of course, even that right relies on the fact that they're going to pick up this message, they're going to like decode whatever code they use to encode all that information. So it's um you know it's it's yeah, very how do you radio transmit an image. Image. Well, the, the same way that you do like a radio transmission of um, like a, ra- a radio, you do frequency modulation, like FM radio. When you hear about FM radio, what that is, is it's like a signal that the frequency of the signal is jiggling around a little bit in such a way that your like radio is capable of interpreting as sounds. So they essentially okay. do that. I think they we send need to, it- after this, I feel like we need an episode on radios because I'm like, how does this work? Oh, I yeah. I mean, we, we definitely don't have the, the time to cover radio <laughs> physics today. If you can send audio, you can send images, right? Because you can just encode like the data that's going to make up the image as a series of ones and zeros, like beeps and boops on the radio. So you send like radio, a radio baby. signal that just goes like beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop, which is essentially like binary that you could then encode an image in. So like it, it's, ah. it's, it, it's, it's more like... If if you can find a way to transmit data at all, you can send audio or video or pictures or whatever if you've got enough time. But they they decided to use FM, frequency modulated radio, which is the same way that we send like radio waves out for car stereos to pick up. So, you know, assuming the aliens were listening at the right time in the right place and that they happened to be looking for frequency modulated radio, they might have actually got this message. I really just love the idea of an alien, which again looks like a little green man in my head right now. Just like cruising along on his little hover car and he's scrolling through the FM stations and then just gets to this random one that's just crazy sounding. It's like, well, yeah, he just I, tunes I must be caught boop, between boop, stations. Boop, boop, gotta keep boop, scrolling. Boop, boop, boop. And then yeah. he's like, fuck, I gotta try and decode this shit. And then he's like, it's a planet. It's <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's all the way over here. I mean, yeah. And that's he, like- he puts it in the news, but no one believes him because they're like, come on, Carl. Everyone knows yeah. that humans aren't real. Come on, alien Carl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so another thing you could do is, well, if you're going to send a message to aliens and you're already sending satellites far away from Earth, like the Voyager satellites and Pioneer satellites, you may as well strap some fucking plaques to them in the hope that the satellite just gets picked up by an alien ship one day and they'll just <laughs> see this this plaque that you've done. You can go look up uh, the Voyager Golden Discs. Are you and saying... The- are you saying plaque? Plaque, yeah, a plaque. Plaque. Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry. Or, or, or a plaque if you're posh like me. A plaque, yes, a plaque. Or a, a, a plaque if you're from um, <laughs> Foxborough, Massachusetts. Um, so you can go look up the Pioneer plaque and the Voyager Golden Discs if you're interested, because they are actual like physical structures that are currently bolted to the Voyager and Pioneer satellites that are blasting through space, and they contain you know similar stuff like pictures of human beings, information about like various atomic stuff that we know about to like convince the aliens that we know about shit and also in the hope that they might well it's not so much just to convince them we know stuff as it is like the hope that they might recognize it because again assuming like oh like these aliens would be aware of atomic structures they might like look at this diagram of a hydrogen atom and say oh cool that's a hydrogen atom you know and then like it kind of gives us like a common common basis to start talking but of course yeah i mean as i liked the thought that it's sort of like a cosmic dating profile and you're like i'm cool yeah. I know atomic profiles, man. Well, it's, it's a should, little bit of both, right? You get in right? contact. I mean, I guess, like, the aliens would be seeing this strapped to a fucking satellite, so they'd probably <laughs> look at the satellite and be like, okay, <laughs> they can build satellites. They seem to know what's up. Yeah, yeah. Or, Taryn, excitingly, the other thing you could do is we already uh, touched on the idea of looking for fucking alien megastructures, baby! So now I want to talk about some more modern alien news, just very quickly here. Okay. So in 2015, there was this star that was called Tabby's Star that was being observed by telescopes. And people started to notice, hmm, there's this weird periodic dimming pattern. The star's getting, like, brighter and dimmer in a really weird way that that isn't consistent with other things that we've seen from other stars. Like, we know some stars do exhibit periodic dimming, but this one was exhibiting periodic dimming in a really weird pattern. And everyone was kind of like, hmm, what's that about? Some scientists are like, hey... 
Maybe that periodic dimming is actually a series of satellites that are orbiting this star in like a giant swarm, and that's something that would be called a Dyson swarm, like a version of a Dyson sphere, but like made up of many discrete satellites rather than one continuous shell. And they were saying like the data, the dimming data fits the idea that this is a distant star with a Dyson swarm around it. That has since been like you know pretty heavily disagreed with like other people have said oh no it actually looks like uh, these other more mundane processes that we've seen around other stars in the past but it is at least an indication that like this was a real scientific paper that proposed the idea that this dimming observed in this distant star was a result of satellites that an alien civilization was using to harness the energy around that star so like it's a real Ooh. genuine way to think about looking for aliens whether that one is true or not it's a thing that people definitely do but couldn't, like, a moon passing over the star make it dim and then get brighter again? Like, yeah, what absolutely. makes that different? We, we, we know. It's more about the pattern. Like, it's about how regular it is and how many periodic dimmings there are, right? So, like, yeah, if you were to look at our star from far away, as all of the planets passed in front of it, you would yeah. see it getting dimmer and brighter and dimmer and brighter. But, like, the regularity of that pattern and how many different things traverse in front of it c- can tell you about whether it looks like a planet or whether it looks like something else. Ah, uh, Okay. So so it was like, this pattern could be consistent with the Dyson Swarm, or it could be some other stuff. But, uh, you know, that was an interesting thing. Other recent yeah. alien news. Um, did you hear about the discovery of phosphine on Venus in 2020? Ooh, I didn't. I was busy pandemicking, I assume. Yeah, no, f- fair enough. So um, phosphine is a chemical compound that, as far as we know, is associated with biological processes. Like, we don't understand how phosphine, which again is just like a chemical, uh, can be produced without some kind of organic life form. And hmm. that's not to say it can't, it's just to say with the chemistry we understand today, phosphine comes from organic processes. So it's long okay. been thought of as a marker of life. And in 2020, some observations of the atmosphere around the planet Venus saw evidence of phosphine gas kicking around in the atmosphere, which got people very excited about the possibility of, like, some kind of life, like microbial life on Venus or something like that. Just in the backyard! I know, so that's like... All over these galaxies, it's just over on Venus, baby! I know, right? And that's what's so cool about it. Like, that's, that's like, you know, in, in the time scale of, like, learning about alien life, that's, like, hot off the presses news. That was 2020. Yeah, so, wow. So that stuff's being investigated, like, currently. It's being followed up on. Some people have disputed the detection of phosphine. Some people have said, oh, it, it is phosphine, but it, it's very unlikely that there's life. It's probably some new chemistry. But, you know, it, it also could be some kind of microbial life that we don't understand yet that exists in the atmosphere of Venus that's producing this phosphine gas. So... That's a pretty cool Venus. Thing. Huh. Now, I totally missed of, that. There's a couple <laughs> of other recent alien things I want to talk about quickly before we wrap up here, Taryn. And this is really okay. fucking cool. I've been sitting on this for a while. So, Ooh, I'm excited. Remember when we were talking about whether or not like UFOs have ever actually been to Earth before? If you spend a little bit yeah. of time on the internet, you'll see all kinds of things that claim to be like leaked UFO videos. Are you saying there's conspiracy theories on the internet, Benjamin? (laughs) uh, Shocking, I know. But in 2007, there were a few videos that started to be leaked on, like, forums, claiming to be like, these are videos from the US military showing weird spacecraft that rotate in space in strange ways, and they they move around in ways that, like, our most advanced ships can't possibly do today, and they, you know, blah, 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 all, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It got a lot of media coverage in 2017, particularly these three videos, uh, These, which, hold, hold on to your hat for a minute. In 2017, the media started saying, hey, look at these videos that claim to be uh, leaked UFO videos from the US military. The fucking mm-hmm. bonkers banana shit is in 2020, the US Navy confirmed that they are in fact real videos of UFOs taken by the US Navy. This is a real fucking thing. Wait, I thing. think I remember this. Yeah. But it, it was during it was the pandemic. Huge news. So we were like, just like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. In April 2020, the Navy was like, yep, those three videos in particular that are now called the Pentagon UFO videos are real videos taken by the Navy of unexplained aerial phenomena. So they weren't acknowledging that they're aliens, but they were AEPs. saying UAP, unexplained aerial phenomena. Oh, you. Um, <laughs> they, they weren't saying that they're aliens, but they were saying, yeah, these are real videos taken from our ships. And you can hear, like, in the videos, the pilots on these, like, Navy planes being like, what the fuck is that thing? Oh my god, it's going so fast. What the fuck? How did it just turn around like that? And, like, freaking out in the videos. And the government well, was fair. like, yeah, this is real shit. And then, huh. um, yeah, in, in 
2021, uh, this year, like a couple months ago, uh, in fact, sometime in April, so like very recently, uh, some other stuff was also declassified and, and, and confirmed to be true, like other similar stuff. Just essentially like huh. the US government in the last year has started like acknowledging the fact that they've been looking for or trying to understand these unexplained aerial phenomena. Um, in fact, in, in 2020, they acknowledged publicly the existence of the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, which is a program within the US Office of Naval Intelligence, which followed on from a program that ran from 2007 to 2012 called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. So essentially, like, they've had these, like, semi-secret government programs for a while, um, where they've essentially said, like, yeah, we're investigating these things. These are real, unexplained aerial phenomena. We're not saying they're aliens. They could be incursions from an advanced technological opponent or something. We're just, we're studying them. We're actively looking at these things. And yes, those are real videos that we don't know what they are today. So that's pretty fucking crazy. Crazy and cool and awesome and exciting yeah. if you ask me. I mean, I also, I still remember vividly when, when that happened. And, but again, it was, you said April. So it, for us, yep. that was the first pandemic month of pa- the pandemic oh, and yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. else made sense anyway. So I think I saw a headline that was like, aliens. the government <laughs> just said aliens and sure, why not? Because yeah, like, cool, nothing yeah, aliens, makes sense whatever. anyway. <laughs> yeah. We're all busy dealing with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, Crazy. The, the cool thing is, uh, so it was like last uh, June, July in the US when all this was being acknowledged. And then towards the end of the year, I, I think like, I'm not 100% on how your politics works over there, but like some bigwigs in the government essentially gave uh, the UAP task force like six months to make a formal report to the intelligence agencies about UAPs. So like they're currently like right now in the process of collating all of the information that they have about these things and they're going to make a big report about it like in the next couple of months. So we're in well, like... that'll be exciting. Yeah, crazy weird exciting times for UFO stuff. Now look, if you ask me, are these aliens? I'm going to say probably not. I'm going to say there's some kind of advanced (laughs) aircraft. But, you know, it's a cool thing to think about. And uh, there should be some news coming about it shortly, I guess. Oh, man. That's so exciting. I can't wait to, like, set a new Google alert for aliens and (laughs) see when that report comes out. (laughs) Well, Ben, that was so exciting for me to learn about. I went into this with, again, very little knowledge of aliens. And I now feel pretty confident that I could, like, have a pretty fun discussion at a party with somebody who's like hey you think aliens are real man and i'll be like oh man i got i got 45 minutes of content that says maybe it's complicated (laughs) i got science fact shit to say about aliens to you my man yeah no that's great i mean i i love this stuff i'm a big fucking nerd for it i like i i admittedly get too excited about this sometimes um and you know i don't think you can be too excited about the possibility of aliens i think yeah I think no, that's fair enough. The limit does not exist. That's a mean but, girl's joke. <laughs> but hey, you gotta you gotta stay skeptical, all right? That's the that's the main exactly. Thing. You gotta remember th- these things. They're probably not aliens, but it's fun to think about anyway. Hey, so thanks so much for yeah. listening. We hope you've had a fun time getting out of this world with us. Thank you to our special guest uh, for coming on and talking about their very very cool research. Yes, thank you. If you want to hear more from us, um, which hopefully you do, um, then you can follow us on all kinds of social media. We're on the Instagram. Instagram at Curio Network, as well as Twitter at Curio Network. Uh, we also have a Twitter just for this show called at Principal Cast. And you can also reach us individually. I'm at Science Taren. And I'm at Dr. BT McAllister. You can also engage with us on Facebook at Curio Network. Um, or, right. you know, if you want to help us out, uh, go leave us a rating or a review wherever you're listening or, or share and tell a friend. We know every podcast asks you to do that, but please actually do it. It would make my day. It would make Taryn's day, okay? Or just send one of us a message and tell us how much you like it. And if you've got topics you want to hear us cover, throw that shit in there as well. So um, thanks again for listening. You're all the best. And uh, until next time, stay uncertain. Stay uncertain. We did it! We did it! (laughs) 